Happy Sabbath, church family. Have you been blessed so far? Amen. I have been too. Well, I'm going to be sharing a a very special message. uh, Something that God was really leading me to last year. And I really hope and pray that it's a blessing to you. Also, for Sabbath afternoon, I'm going to be talking about a very special topic. I'm going to be talking about our church history and sort of the development of the health message and its downfall. We're going to be taking a good look at the history of J. Harvey Kellogg and why that is so relevant to us today. And that's at 3 o'clock. So if you have some time, please come on out for that. Are you happy it's the Sabbath? Amen. You know, it's very interesting. I was talking to somebody a week ago. Do you know that, uh, well, just let me just ask you, if you were an employer or you claimed to be an employer and you had no employees, would you actually be an employer? If you had no kids, would you actually be a parent? If you had no church members, would you actually be a pastor? Somebody said yes. <laughs> pastor of what? <laughs> right? The point I'm trying to make is this. Jesus would not have said, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, if the Sabbath was not existing anymore. Because he is not the God of the dead, he is the God of the living, friends. That's why he is the Lord of the Sabbath. You see, friends, the Sabbath is meant to be a day of life. Amen? Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer and let's jump into this message. Father in heaven, we just thank you again for the beautiful Sabbath, the music. Lord, for bringing us here for whatever purposes you have for us. We pray and ask that our hearts would be open to receive the present blessing That is our prayer in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. I'm going to share something with you. I used to be a call porter. Any call porters here? I think I raised my hand. I don't see anybody here who's a call porter. No, I know Souls West is over here. But uh, I used to canvas and, uh, you know, a little bit I'd go door to door. And, you know, when I was a pastor, I'd go door to door and we'd do surveys. And many people... Did not like that. You knock at people's door and they would say things like, hey, I'm not interested. Or sometimes people would say things like, I'm a pagan. Or my favorite was this. Yeah, I'm an atheist. As if I'm supposed to be scared. Ooh, an atheist. You know, I'm an atheist. Run for your life, right? You know, and so when I was a call porter and when I was going door to door, I would come across people with a variety of beliefs. A variety of beliefs. And in a world today that is growing increasingly secular and got various aberrations of religion, there is a lot of people today who are claiming to be atheists or people who are claiming to be non-theists. Individuals who say, I don't believe in God or I don't believe in that concept of God or I'm not a religious person. I don't believe in organized religion. In fact, one day I was doing some research on atheism for a seminar I was doing And I came across an atheist blogger. Do you know what a blogger is? What's a blogger? Someone who writes blogs. Thank you for the Webster's Dictionary definition. (laughs) Right? It's someone who writes blogs online or just, or sort of, sort of, you could say like a 
a daily journal entry of their life, right? And so this atheist blogger was writing about things that would convince her in believe, to believe in God. She says, look, I'm an atheist, but if I was to be a believer in God, there would have to be several criteria that would have to be met in order for me to believe there is a God, okay? This is what she said. Number one, I'd have to see accurate prophecies in sacred text. Number two, I would have to see accurate science in religious text. Number three, I would have to find a successful religion. And by the way, you know how she defines successful religion? The adherents of the religion are healthy and happy. Number four, inexplicably accurate information gained during near death. In other words, she wants to know what happens when you die. And the last one, an unambiguous message. Now let's just think about this, friends. She is looking for somebody or something that apparently can explain to her accurate prophecies. She's looking for sort of a a message that harmonizes with the data that is found in the world around us. She is looking for a religion in which the inheritance or inheritance would be happy and healthy. And she is looking for information about what happens to people when they die. And she wants a clear message. Let me ask you a question. Where might she find something like this? You're supposed to answer that question. I remember when I was reading this, I thought to myself, you know, it's like she's an unbaptized Adventist. She's looking for prophecy. She's looking for a religion that helps us, you know, harmonizes with the data that's found in the world. She's looking for a a religion in which the adherents are supposed to be healthy and happy, right? Right? She's looking for something that explains what happens after death. And she's looking for a clear message. When I read that, I thought to myself, she's looking for Adventists. I mean, she's looking for this. And I was so blown away when I learned about this. And I thought to myself, man, if I could only talk to this person or give her a glow pamphlet or something. But anyways, I thought to myself, there are a lot of people today who claim to be atheists. Did you know there are various kinds of atheists that exist in our world today? It's not just people who say, you know what, I do not believe in God's existence. For example, there are those who say, we don't need God's existence. Like Stephen Hawking says that, right? You have other individuals who say, you know what? There is no such thing as love in this world. And so you have various forms of atheism that exist. Do you know the Bible tells us at the very end of time, the love of many would what? Wax cold. The Bible teaches God is love. So what is happening at the very end of time? This image or picture of God is being wiped out Right at the very end of time. The time when Earth's Earth's sort of narrative is in the darkest part of history. Friends, this is super important. Because what this world is really craving for is biblical love. By the way, if you ever read the book Acts of the Apostles, the very first chapter, Ellen White makes this comment. Very interesting, very intriguing. She says eventually will be made manifest in the church the full display of the love of God. In other words, she is saying 
that God will take the church and he will use it as a place, an environment, an atmosphere, an arena to display his love to the entire universe. It's a powerful thing when we begin to understand this. The book Education tells us that Satan himself is seeking to disprove the very concept of love in this universe. She says these words, unselfishness, the principle of God's kingdom is the principle that Satan, what? Hates. Notice this next phrase right here. It's very existence, he, what? In other words, he is saying, there really is no such thing as love. There really is no such thing as love. In fact, when he was challenging God in the book of Job, he was challenging the very motives of why Job was doing the things that he was doing. He was challenging the very nature, the DNA of the law itself, that love is the ultimate motivation. He essentially says, there is no such thing. It doesn't exist. Real love does not exist in this universe. She goes on to say, From the beginning of the great controversy, he has endeavored to prove God's principles of action to be selfish. And he deals in the same way with all who serve God. To disprove Satan's claim is the work of Christ and all who bear his name. Can you say amen to that? Your life's mission is to prove the love of God in this universe. Can you say amen to that? And it's through the work God does in your life that the love of God is displayed. Everybody take your Bible. Let's go to the book of Philippians. Not Isaiah yet. The book of Philippians. Remember the best way to find Philippians is Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, right? General Electric Power Company. We are looking for Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. In this work that God is doing in our lives, it's important to understand some very powerful things. Philippians chapter 1. If you're there, go ahead and say, Amen. I'm using that to stall until I find it. (laughs) Philippians chapter 1, right here. Are we all there? Are we all there? Let's read verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the what? So who is he writing this letter to? Let me read it one more time. To all the saints in Christ Jesus. Who is he writing this letter to? All the saints, right? Let's continue reading. Who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Verse 6. Being confident of this very thing... He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the what? In other words, he is saying, look, you're a work in progress. Amen? You're a work in progress. Who is he writing this letter to? Now notice this. He is writing the letter to the saints. And then he says, you're a work in progress. Friends, I want you to understand something. The definition of a saint to Paul is somebody who has a work in progress. Amen? Some of you are thinking, I don't have a halo behind my head. Or I'm not in Calcutta, India, helping out the poor orphans. Friends, I want you to know something. If Christ is working in your life, according to him, you are a saint of God. 
How many people are say, can say honestly, yeah, God is working in my life. I'm not perfect, but he's working in my life. Now, can you also say this? I guess I'm a saint of God. Some of you still don't want to say that, right? You're like, I don't know about that. Okay, the person next to you, point to them and say, you are a saint of God. You guys got to point to me too, right? And that's powerful, friends, when we begin to understand that sanctification is the work of a lifetime. Amen? And do you know how we are continually refined? It's when we behold what love is, that love is awakened in our own heart. The love of God begins to supersede all other loves for the things of this world. So we need to understand what is the love of God all about? How many people here honestly want to admit they have an Instagram? Raise your hand. The majority of you are lying. I have you as friends. That's why I know. Right? Now, I'm going to be very honest with you because this is a moment of vulnerability. Whenever you take an Instagram photo of yourself or a Facebook photo of yourself, you'll take probably three or four pictures, right? In fact, if I was to look in the database of where your photos are, you'll have probably five or six photos of yourself, right? But many times I take photos with my dog, Hero. And people think I'm obsessed with my German Shepherd. I'm slightly obsessed. But anyways, I'll do this. I'm like, Hero, let's pose right now. And I'll take a picture and if I don't like the picture, what I'll do is I'll put the filters on, X-Pro2 filter on. I look better. And then I'm like, oh, my nose looks a little bit bigger. Let's change that. And then I'll go over here, and I'm like, oh, the lighting doesn't look good right there. And so, and my dog starts going off, and I realize something. I have to take a bunch of photos to get this thing right. So what am I saying to you? The book of Isaiah reveals several pictures of God. And these pictures of God were given to Isaiah to lead him to a greater love and revelation until he came to the point of complete sacrifice. Do you know how Isaiah died, by the way? Tradition holds he was sawed in half. I mean, just think about how disgusting that is. How painful. Like, even before the saw hits you, you would be like, no, no, stop right there, it hurts already. The point I'm trying to make, how in the world could somebody be so convicted about something that they would pay the ultimate price with their lives? And it's because he had a revelation of God unlike any other. Everybody take your Bible. Let's go to the book of Isaiah. Let's see this first picture he has of God. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. This is amazing, friends, because what you're going to see is two Powerful pictures of Isaiah here. Isaiah chapter 6. Verse 1. Are we all there? All right. Let's see what the Bible says right here. In the year King Uzziah died. Now I want you to know something about this. King Uzziah was meant to be the king that being great reform upon Israel. Now the reason why he died is because he was struck with leprosy. A disease that destroyed his body. Now the question is, why was he struck with leprosy? Because he was a king who one day had enough pride in his heart that he thought to himself, I am going to look into the most holy place of the sanctuary. The Bible tells us he walked into the sanctuary. The priest tried to stop him. He kept pushing his way through, trying to see what was in the most holy place of God. When the Bible tells us he was struck with leprosy, 
and he took off. And eventually this king died. Now here's where it gets so unusual. The very year this king died, this highest ruler in the land of Israel, the Bible says something unusual takes place. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Friends, I want you to realize something. Isaiah was not a special person. He didn't have any great kind of privilege or role. Yet he has an unusual vision. And do you know where he is brought into? The most holy place of the universe. Here a king dies. Because he was not allowed into the most holy place. And Isaiah all of a sudden has a vision. And he's brought into the most sacred place in the universe. The very throne room of God himself. And he begins to see something powerful. Let's continue reading. Above it stood seraphim, each with six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. One cried to another saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door was shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. And so said I, woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hands a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth with it and said, behold. This has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. It's amazing, friends, when you begin to realize what just happened here. Isaiah is just brought into the very presence of God, and there he sees the Lord God Almighty on his throne. And suddenly the voice of God begins to speak, and the very pillars that hold up the temple of God begin to shake. And the angels are there in worship. In glory, bailing themselves because of the presence of God Almighty. And there Isaiah all of a sudden starts feeling his sin. He starts feeling all the mistakes he has made. And he begins to recognize at that very moment, I am a messed up person. I'm a messed up person. And there was the grace of God that had brought Isaiah into that very place to receive a beautiful message from God himself. A calling that came from the most sacred place in the universe. Friends, I want you to understand something. If you are a Seventh-day Adventist, you have received your calling from the most holy place where God dwells. It is a powerful calling that does not come in some part of the universe, but it comes from the very throne of God himself. To you. Can you imagine that scene? Like how would you even describe it? By the way, did you know Paul has a vision of the throne of God? You know what he says in 2 Corinthians? He says, look. I saw things. That it's even unlawful. For me to articulate. Like in other words, he said, I saw things and I heard things that. Look, I can't really even tell you about it. Because if I was to do it, I would actually diminish what I saw. I mean, this is an amazing moment Isaiah is having because in this very year is the year that this secular man tried to enter into this very place on earth. And yet God himself brings this worthless man into the most holy place, not just of an earthly sanctuary, but of heaven itself. 
He sees this powerful picture of God. And God calls him to do a mighty work. But years later, years later, the Bible tells us, Isaiah, going through a time of crisis with Israel, receives another revelation. Take your Bible and go to Isaiah 53. The Bible begins to tell us right here that he has another picture of God. Another revelation of this God. And what is so unusual is the changes that are present. Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53. Let's see what the Bible says in verse 1. Who has believed our what? Do you know what it's essentially saying? If you were to reiterate this, do you know what it would be saying? It would be like, look, you're not going to believe what I'm about to tell you. Now you stop right there. You may say, Pastor, I know exactly where you're going with this. You hold on for a second. Here Isaiah is just giving this this whole picture and he's like, wait a minute. You're not going to believe what I just saw. Like in your mind, it's not going to make any sense. You're going to look at it and you're going to be like, no, 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 no. No, no, you must be wrong here. Let's continue reading. Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. As a root out of a dry ground, he had no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should despise him, desire him. He is despised and rejected by man. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not steam him. And verse 4 and 5 are so key. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. For he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Now what is so unusual about this picture that Isaiah has He doesn't see God in all his glory in a throne. He sees the glory of God removed. And he sees Jesus covered with human flesh. Surrounded by, not by angels, but this time surrounded by men who are trying to hurt him. And what is so amazing is when Isaiah saw that first picture of God, he felt sin in his heart. But then he looks at this picture of God and then he notices sin is upon him. The Messiah is feeling the effects of sin. Not because he was a sinner. But something else is going on here. A new picture is being born to Isaiah. Something so unusual that the Messiah himself, God himself would step off the throne of glory. And he would pay the ultimate price for you and for me. This is where it begins to get a step deeper. C.S. Lewis used to say these words, higher up and deeper in, higher up and deeper in. Let's see what the Bible says next. Jump all the way to verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray and we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him. The iniquity of us all. Then the Bible says this in verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. 
and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. Friends, I want you to understand something right here. Isaiah is seeing another picture of God he had never before understood and even, even just thought of or imagined that the God of glory would step down and not just step down and become a man. But, be, but dealing with all the human temptations and the struggles of life. And eventually, he would pay a price that was so unusual. You know, as an evangelist, we say things and then we disappear. I preach at churches, I'll say tough things, and then I'm gone. I think it's my biblical duty not to answer people's phone calls either. That's what evangelists do. We say things and we disappear. You won't see me, you, won't, you can try and get a hold of me. People are like, Pastor, no, I can't get a hold of you. My duty as an evangelist to disappear. I'll reappear somewhere else. What am I trying to say? As an evangelist, I preach on prophecy all the time. And many times I come across people like, I heard this before. Pastor, no, you got to give us something new. And I'm like, man. Man. And many times I'll go over special prophecies that we've gone through in all our evangelistic series. 2300-day prophecy, I'll go over the 70-week prophecy. But friends, more and more as I'm studying out the 70-week prophecy in the book of Daniel, I'm starting to understand something. Something so unusual. The Bible says something very powerful about the very scenes that are found in the book of Isaiah. I'm going through a book written by Donald Wolf, And what's so interesting, he did his dissertation on some very unusual words that are found in the prophecy of the 70 weeks. It says these words right here. Then he confirmed a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And after Messiah shall be, what's that next word? Cut off. But not for himself. Now what is so interesting, this scholar says something so powerful. That that phrase, Messiah shall be cut off, is not a very just... Uh, usual word that you will find in regular language, uh, language, biblical language. It appears in certain places. It appears in the book of Numbers. It appears in Deuteronomy. And uh, there are people who have been preaching on this topic, but what is so powerful, he says in his dissertation is, is, when Daniel was reading this phrase, and Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself, Daniel would have understood something from further or later on, or excuse me, early on in the Old Testament. What would he have understood? That that phrase cut off was something that was applied to people who were completely void of redemption. People in the Old Testament who when they missed the day of atonement would no longer have access to sacrifice. There would be nothing that would atone for them. And it's so powerful, he goes on in this long paper and he starts talking about how, look... When somebody was cut off, not only were they cut off, but their entire family was cut off. Their descendants were cut off from salvation. And so here Daniel is reading these words, and you can just imagine, here Daniel is just writing these words, and Messiah shall be. Wait, what? Wait a minute. What? Let's go through this one more time. Messiah shall be cut off? Wait, that, that, that applies to those, those people who don't have hope of salvation. Wait, that applies to people who were no longer accessible or had no more access to the sanctuary service. 
this applies, wait a minute, this would apply to people who would have been punished, not by man, but this would have been a divine penalty brought on by God himself. Wait a minute, what are you talking about? The Messiah shall be cut off. Friends, as a pastor, I have visited many people who are on their deathbeds. You ever visit a Christian on their deathbed? It's much different. I visit many people and I've always noticed something about Christians. They're there and there seems to be this light shining on their face. Their body is falling apart, shutting down. The machines are making all sorts of noises. And yet, there is a slight smile. And there's this hope. And you're there and you're praying with people and they said, you know what? I know what will happen at the second coming. I've talked to people, I've visited people on their deathbed, and they're just like, marching to Zion. You know, and they're just like singing praises to God at the very end of their life. You'd be like, man, these people have hope of a resurrection. That's just fantastic. But friends, when you study out the last scenes of Christ's life, he is crying out, God, why have you forsaken me? What's my point? God, why have you forsaken me? Doesn't sound like a saved man. It sounds like a lost man. Someone who has no hope of a resurrection. Someone who feels utterly cut off from God himself. Friends, when Jesus was dying the death, that the wicked will die at the end of time, he entered into the very experience when all incentive to trust and believe in God was cut off. And all he understood was, this is the very end of my life. It's a powerful thing when we begin to realize that this penalty came from God himself. Jesus didn't die like a saved man. He died like a lost man. He died surrounded in darkness. No complete assurance of a future resurrection. You know, prior to that time, Jesus would always say, Hey, I'm going to die, then resurrect. I'll die three days later, I'll be fine. But when he entered into the experience of Gethsemane, what is so unusual is that very assurance of the future was completely removed from Jesus where he had no more an incentive to believe that he would have a resurrection for himself. In other words, love cut off from all other incentives became locked into its most purest form of complete unselfishness. And Jesus made a decision for you and for me during that time. And so Dan, you can just imagine, was trembling as he was writing these words. Messiah shall be cut off. And we sometimes dismiss that prophecy. Oh, it's just something they preach in prophecy series. Friends, I want you to understand something. This prophecy contains a very distinct message of the sacrifice of Christ. You know, we talk about ramifications of Jesus being human for all of eternity. We talk about that. Oh, we say things like, oh yeah, he's going to be limited in form. He no longer has omnipresence. And he's carrying this human nature into heaven, Ellen White says. We talk about the ramifications of him becoming a man. But friends, I'm going to make a very special point here. And something you need to study out is this. There are eternal ramifications of him dying this death. 
You say, well, what are those? You'll have to find out for yourself. There were things at stake. We don't fully understand what was going on in the universe at that very moment. You see, friends, when Jesus was dying this unusual kind of death, there were things that were permanently changed, permanently altered for all of eternity. This sacrifice is more than just him becoming a human. This was a kind of sacrifice that had eternal ramifications that part of eternity will reveal. And so, friends, when people tell you, yeah, Jesus loves you, when you begin to really take that in, it is so powerful. God really loves me. He really, really loves me. He became a lost man for me. So I would never, ever have to experience that. Friends, God himself has taken upon himself a penalty so unusual, so dark. The Bible does not describe exactly what happens. Jesus took upon himself a death that even the lost will not fully experience as he had experienced during that time because of who he was in character. It's a powerful thing when we begin to understand the great sacrifice of Jesus. You know, when I first became a Christian... I remember some people would try to witness to me, and some of them I think were successful. Sometimes they'd come up to me and they would say, I remember this one time I used to work at Kmart, and this big guy walks in, older fellow, nice guy, and he had just this big old like biker vest on him, and this little pin that said, I love Jesus. Big old beard. And he had one of those eyes, you know where he can't can't look at you straight, one of his eyes kind of looks at you. And while we were there, he asked for some stuff. Hey, uh, could you show me around in this area? I didn't know anything about fishing. So I was like, yeah, that's the fishing area. And he's like, okay, what do you need? You know, I need this kind of line. I'm like, all right, how about check this side over here? And so I'd point, to these thing, point these things out to him. And then he would, we were just talking, and he's like, yeah, man. He's like, he looked at me with his one eye, and he said, you believe God loves you? And I said, yeah, I, I believe that. And then he said, good. And then he continued looking, and then he looked at me again with his one eye, and he said, you believe Jesus died on a cross for you? And I said, yeah, I I believe that. And then he'd go on doing what he's doing, and then he left. And that was his witnessing to me, and I I appreciate it, but I always thought to myself, really, that's it? There's something else going on. I'm not getting. I'm not picking up on this. And many times we look at this thing. Friends, I want you to understand something. The penalty that Jesus dealt with and experienced actually was described in the Old Testament. And the irony of this whole thing is, he is the one that dished this penalty out. Did you know Ellen White talks about the very sacrifice of Abraham and Isaac? She talks about this very moment where Abraham is struggling to sacrifice his son Isaac. And what is so unusual, she says at the very end of that chapter, she says just these words right here at the very end. She says, All the universe watched, and the plan of redemption was made more fully known to the universe. Now, friends, let me ask you a question. Did they understand the basic elements of the gospel prior to that, the universe, the unfallen world? Yeah, they did. So what is it that they learned at that very moment when Abraham was right there struggling to sacrifice his son? It's this. The narrative does not focus on Isaac, does it? Who does the narrative focus on? The father. 
So what is it that the universe was understanding about this very moment? That even the Father would be broken in this process of sacrificing his own son. Friends, this is a powerful thing when we begin to realize this. Did you know in the Old Testament, you have a few phrases that are given to God as our Father, our Father. But did you know over a hundred times it appears in the New Testament, our Father, our, our God as a Father? You know what else is so interesting about the New Testament? In the Old Testament, God is described as our Father. In the New Testament, is where you get an unusual description of the Father by Jesus where he says, my Father, my Father. That's my Father. And so you begin to get this unusual struggle that begins to happen. And as you begin to look at this, it's so mind-blowing. And it begins to stir up in your heart. Man, this God really cares about pathetic people like me. You know, it's so interesting. Is I've been reading this book written by John Peckham. He's a actually theologian, one of our boys at Andrews University, and he came up with this unusual concept and something that warrants more study. And he says this, there are two facets to the love of God. Number one, it's unilateral, he says. God loves you before you do anything for him, before you could do anything for him. God loves you before you even existed. And he says, you can't change that. But then he introduces another element. He says there's a facet of God's love, though, that is bilateral. And what he says essentially is this. Is in this facet of God's love that is bilateral. God's love is not static. Rather, it's dynamic. So what's the point? He starts arguing that this facet of God's love is a love that even grows in God's own heart. Could you back that up? Remember when Jesus says these words? The Father loves you, but he loves me more now because I'm laying down my life. Do you remember what the Bible says about Jacob and Esau? Jacob I have loved, but Esau I've loved less. So what does this mean, this bilateral love? It essentially means God will love you as much as you will give him opportunity to love you. He goes on to say these unusual words right here that are so powerful. He says this, along these lines, the four conditional reciprocal models suggest that God's love is volitional, but not merely volitional. That is, while scriptures present God's love for the world as freely given and not necessary to his being, such as love, is not the product of divine volition alone. God's love is also evaluative, emotional, foreconditional, and ideally reciprocal. Friends, God has loved you with an eternity past, and now he wants to love you with an eternity future. And if you give him opportunity, he will lavish all the love he can give to you. And the only limit is what you will allow him to. Friends, God has loved you even before you were born. But this kind of relational love he's inviting you into is a love that grows not just in your own heart, but in his own heart as well. Ellen White says there are people who God is especially close to. You know, she says that. And it's not because they're more special than you and I, but because they've allowed 
this love relationship between them and God to grow. Friends, God himself grows in love at your responses as well. It's a powerful thing when we begin to realize this. You know, one day I was at my friend's house, who happens to be a math professor, and as we were talking, we start talking about proofs. You guys know what a proof is? Sometimes there are things we just want to forget about, right? <laughs> Mathematical proofs are them. And he starts telling me about math proofs, and he says this, you want to know something I've been studying out and teaching to my students? I go, what is that? He says, it is possible to prove in math one infinity can be greater than another infinity. And I was like, what? He said, let me tell you again. I can prove through a mathematical proof how one infinity can be greater than another infinity. And I'm like, show me. And he attempts to show me and I'm like, I don't understand this. And he's like, it makes sense to me. And I thought to myself, that's ridiculous. How could one infinity, one eternity be bigger, they're greater than another eternity. Until I read this quote from Ellen White. I love that woman. Can't wait to hug her when I get to heaven. (laughs) She says these words right here. However far we may advance in the knowledge of God's wisdom and his power, there is ever an infinity beyond all the paternal love which has come down from generation to generation through the channel of human hearts, all the springs of tenderness, which have opened the souls of men, are but as a tiny rill to the boundless ocean when compared with the infinite, exhaustless love of God. Tongue cannot utter it. Pen cannot portray it. You may meditate upon it every day of your life. You may search the scriptures diligently in order to understand it. You may summon every power and capability that God has given you in the endeavor to comprehend the love and compassion of the Heavenly Father. And yet there's an infinity beyond. You may study that love for ages, yet you can never fully comprehend the length and the breadth, the depth, and the height of the love of God in giving his son to die for the world. And I love how she ends this phrase, right? this quote. She says, eternity itself can never fully reveal it. Friends, I want you to understand something. The eternity of God's love is greater than the eternity of time itself. God wants to lavish his love upon you. If you will say, like God calls us to say, Lord, I don't want to say no to your love. I want my heart to be open to this love. Friends, God will lavish that love he's been waiting to give to you. There's times, even in my own spiritual experience, where you feel weary, you feel tired, you get just caught up in the routines of religion. But the God of heaven and earth understands where we are coming at, even today. And love, his love, the greatest force in the universe, can bring life to you again. You see, in the presence of the life giver, dead things become alive. Moses' rod brought into the very presence of God became alive. Friends, God can resurrect the dead Through his love. We are living 
in some very unusual times, the Bible tells us that the everlasting gospel is preached at the end of time. Jesus talked about the gospel going to the world. John amplifies that call and he says, the everlasting gospel. And it'll go not just to just the world in general, but to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. The gospel seems to be exposed even more at the very end. And it goes in to the smallest pockets of this world. Friends, God is given to us a revelation of who He is and the sacrifice He has paid for you. You know, I think about Abraham, and I think about Moses, and I think about people like Elijah and David. Do you know we understand who God is by these people? I mean, in other words, what I'm saying is we understand who God is by his, the experience he gave to Moses. We understand who God is by the experience in Elijah's life. We understand who God is by the experience of David's life. What am I trying to say to you? Every human being reveals a specific angle of who God is in a way that another human being cannot. Moses revealed attributes of God that were not known in other human beings experience Abraham revealed an angle of who God's love is that no other human being can experience so what am I saying to you friends when you are lost that experience that beauty that attribute that angle of who God is is forever gone to you see it's through the church of people who love God with all their heart, soul, and mind because He has loved them with all His heart, soul, and mind, are so motivated, so energized by the gospel, they will go to any length, any height, to do what God has called them to do. You know, friends, we're going to do something special, not because this is an evangelistic series, but because we believe that God calls each one of us to make eternal decisions. We're just going to pass out a little prayer card. And in this prayer card, it's just going to be an opportunity for you to talk, for you to make a decision for the Lord. Whatever that decision may be. You may be someone who says, I don't see any decision on this card that I want to make. Then you write the decision to God you want to make on that card. I believe these are moments Times that God is calling us to make a decision for Him. One of my friends who happens to be a singer comes from the islands and he told this story of a pastor who happens to pastor on one of his islands. And he said this unusual story that took place and he says, you see, this pastor wasn't really a a good man in the beginning. His dad, though, was a God-fearing man. His wife had died. He did the best he could to raise his son. But his son was somebody who pushed back, wasn't interested in these kinds of things. And the son began to grow older, wanted nothing to do with church, with God, religion, those kinds of things. The son got into a lot of problems, a lot of fights, and the world entertained him. And one day, he got into a scuffle. 
he pulled out a knife and he just stabbed a man and killed him. Realizing at that moment what happened, he took off running. Didn't know where to go. He went right back to his dad's house. Told his dad with tears in his eyes, I've just done something I wish I never did. And the father just looked at him. He said, son, take off your clothes. Take off your clothes. Takes off all his dirty, bloody clothes. And the father take, goes into his closet, puts on his clothes onto the son. And then he says, here's the keys to my car. Take off. Keep driving. Don't stop. The son did that. Took off. Didn't look back. And he notices in the back police cars coming right to his house. He continues to drive until the light is gone. Comes back years later into that area. And he discovered when he got back that the father, his dad, took those clothes, the bloody clothes, put them on himself. And when though that police came to his door, they want to find out who was this murderer. Who was this man who was a criminal? They saw this man wearing the bloody clothes and said, that's him. They arrested him, tried him, and put him in prison for many years. And he died there. And this man comes back, cut off from this old life, and he comes back and he discovers the sacrifice his father did for him. He gives his life to Christ, becomes a minister of the gospel, and he begins to preach. He's still there on those islands. Friends, I want you to understand something. God has paid the ultimate price for you. He has taken your robes and put upon himself and given to you his robes of righteousness. There is no reason why any person cannot be saved, why any person cannot be part of that eternity that God has for them. Friends, if you want to say, I want to love Jesus because he has loved me, I want you to raise your hand right now. I want to love Jesus even more. I want his love to be lavished upon me. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we just thank you. Lord, we just thank you for the love of God that reaches us where we are at, even at this very moment. And thank you for that love that picks us up as well. Thank you, Lord, you understand humanity, you understand our lives, and you still love us. May we respond to that love as you are responding to that love as well. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.